All right, congratulations, thank you. Um, we are still waiting the final tally, the money's rolling in from the Chad Hero, the 10th Chad Hero on Sunday. And um, we will um, we will probably not make a million dollars, though snow was, dampen was a dampening effect, but we will do better than last year. So as I um, get ourselves set up, I want to remind us that this is, for those of you who are fans, this is um, Back to the Future Day, or at least Back to the Future Today. This apparently is the date that um, Marty McFly tra traveled to in the second, uh, second of the trilogy, October 21st, 2015, um, for Grand Rounds. Next week, we will have Grand Rounds. Uh, Dr. Eric Coons from Utah will present on overdiagnosis or misdiagnosis, invited by Dr. Sean Ralston. And uh, I showed you some other coming attractions. So today we're excited that Dr. Curley is joining us and uh, Dr. Shirley Nett uh, invited Dr. Curley to join us again. I think I remember Dr. Curley a year, few years ago already speaking. So Shirley will reintroduce uh, Dr. Curley to us uh, as our Grand Round speaker for today. Thanks, Shirley. Uh, so it is my great pleasure to welcome Martha Curley here. Martha began her career as a pediatric critical care nurse, but very quickly moved towards um, advanced degrees, ultimately earning her PhD. She has um, worked both through the Harvard system and more recently with University of um, Pennsylvania, but still holds an appointment at, the, at Boston Children's and through the Harvard system. Um, when looking through her CV, she has something like 35 major awards, including being inducted into the Nursing Research Hall of Fame in 2014. She has hundreds of publications. And I don't say this just to impress you, but to really emphasize the fact that she's made an enormous contribution to both nursing education, medical student education, physician education, um, and absolutely in the field of pediatric critical care medicine. She did come to talk to us a while ago, but really was talking about something very different. Now she's gonna talk about some of the work that she's done um, along with a large group of hospitals over the last five years, and I'm really happy to welcome her. Thank you, Martha. Here's a, here's a clock for you. All right. Okay. Thank you. I want to remind uh, Dr. Curley, we already gave the heads up that the pagers may go off at 8.30 <laughs> to the code pagers. Yeah, unless the room clears, I'm th I think I'll be all right. Um, but anyway, thank you so much again. And Shalene, it's wonderful uh, to come back again. I think I was here when my niece was in med school, and she has since graduated, and she's doing her fellowship down in uh, at NYU. Uh, so we're very proud of her. But I, as Shalene said, I'm really excited to be able to come and talk to you about something that uh, really was about 12 years in the making, a very long period of time. As uh, those of you who are clinical trialists know, it takes a lot of time and thinking um, and to get something like this really um, off the ground. So although I'm presenting it, it really is something that has morphed over time. Uh, and um, hopefully uh, when we end, we'll be able to uh, see at least some of the benefit that happened with this. So I bring you greetings from the University of Pennsylvania, where I am a, on faculty there. Um, I've spent an enormous amount of time at Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh, I grew up in Western Mass. I 
you know, I went to Springfield Hospital School of Nursing. That was my original um, place that I grew up. Uh, Dan can remember, I think a long time ago, uh, taking phone calls from me, trying to figure out practice at the time. Uh, Dan obviously being a huge pioneer in Pete's critical care. But I've always ever worked in pediatric critical care. Uh, in the days that I started there, they were quite different than what they are right now. Uh, but having worked at Children's for almost 20 years, I decided to go to the University of Pennsylvania because those of you who don't know, uh, Harvard doesn't have a school of nursing. And I really wanted to grow uh, nursing uh, within an academic environment and to grow doctoral students who could really ask and answer the questions that are critically important to the field. So thus the move to the University of Pennsylvania. When I decided to leave, my boss said, oh, really, you can't leave. Uh, so I do go back to Children's two days um, a month, and I've been doing that for eight years as a high-priced uh, traveling nurse. So I, I definitely am a traveling nurse, but I go in and it's really fun when I go because people don't even know I've gone half of them. They'll say, gee, I haven't seen you around, Martha. Where you been? And I'm like, well, maybe because I haven't been here in eight years. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do love going there. And we continue to do a whole bunch of work. Mostly what I do there is to help staff nurses ask and answer uh, their own research questions. And it's really quite cool uh, to see them be able to take a question uh, that is really clinically relevant, move it through to publication. And so that's what makes me excited now. Uh, but this morning we'll talk about um, sedation, uh, ICU-related sedation. Uh, I think some of it, if you don't work in the intensive care unit, you'll be able to take pieces of it, I think, within your own practice, at least from a design perspective. Uh, but I want to talk about some of the challenges that we face when we are trying to keep kids comfortable, although they're heavily instrumentated in the intensive care unit. I want to talk about uh, the essential elements of this nurse-implemented goal-directed restore protocol that Dean Jarvis probably worked how many years in the making here. Uh, Dartmouth was a site uh, randomized to the control intervention. So I got to know Dean very well over time. And then talk about the outcomes of that clinical trial and how I think that clinical trial has really changed the practice of sedation. At least we have now data uh, to support how we can do this. So uh, to start, trying to keep kids comfortable uh, in the intensive care unit, as they're heavily instrumentated, most kids now intubated and ventilated um, in the ICU, uh, they have to be comfortable. Um, we used to really essentially give them a lot of medicine, a lot of neuromuscular blockade, uh, so that they didn't really participate in the uh, in mechanical ventilation. But now we walk a you know a definite uh, balance of trying to keep them sedated enough, but not really over sedated and keep them able to be able to participate in some of the modes of mechanical ventilation that we now know at least are a little bit more helpful. But they're a, cha a challenging group. I mean, what toddler is gonna lay there and not move, you know, and not rip everything off of them when they are there and they have everything attached to them. They just don't have the cognitive capacity to be able to really understand the imperative nature of not touching everything there. Um, they're also pretty fearful, and it is 
uh, a very scary place when your parents are obviously stressed as well. So there's lots of things um, at play. But what's also really interesting is that we have no agreement on how to keep kids comfortable in the intensive care unit. Um, those of you who are at the bedside know every single shift, every single day, different nurses, different physician groups have different ideas on what and should be used for uh, sedative uh, practices. And then definitely within the country, uh, in the world, everyone has their own cocktail. And what I've come to learn is that there's a lot of passion around this topic. Everyone believes they have exactly the right cocktail, what they would like to see on their patients. And it's been developed through um, trial and error and different patient populations. So again, sometimes if you have a child who's in the unit for a couple of weeks, they might have different sedative strategies, different levels of sedation because of the caregivers at the bedside, their level of comfort on what they should be doing. So lots of variation, not always uh, in the patient's best interest. Um, here you see a laundry list of things that we try to achieve when we want to get kids comfortable. You know, what is comfortable? You know, it's pain relief, it's anxiolysis. Um, in pediatrics, it's probably humane to provide a little bit of amnesia. Uh, because unless somebody has the cognitive capacity to understand what we're doing to them in the ICU, it might be better for them not to remember that event. Uh, although, in the adult world now, we know that there's a direct relationship between PTSD and the ability to cognitively process uh, the event. So, in adults, it's better that they do remember. So amnesia is not important. We don't have that data in pediatrics as yet. Uh, this issue of, uh, of critical care medicine, nice paper out of Canada, talking about uh, people's memories, uh, adult uh, memories of the ICU experience. And they're all over the map from delusional memories to being, uh, being able to remember almost every single factoid but about half of them don't remember anything of what happens uh, in the uh, ICU. We also, um, as you know, try to facilitate care when we're sedating patients. Uh, we need it for patient safety. Sleep is a huge you know, black box in critical care. The meds we give take away any sense of sleep or circadian rhythm. And so I think that's the next front, <laughs> frontier that we might uh, attack now. Uh, but we have to do something about sleep architecture and what that happens uh, with kids in the ICU. And then uh, given Paul Hickey, Sonny Anand's work, we give a lot of drugs, especially in the cardiac intensive care unit, to decrease oxygen uh, consumption. But lots of different reasons why sedatives are given. But definitely the goal is to keep patients as wake as you can uh, and comfortable with minimum adverse events. So that's like the major outcome variable here. Uh, but it is this yin-yang, inadequate sedation, over-sedation. And some of the drugs that we do use uh, the kids will withdraw from these medications over time. Significant iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome when especially the opioids and the benzodiazepines are no longer necessary. Um, and it's very frightening to watch these uh, kids in and by themselves and the parents are very stressed and upset with the physiological uh, withdrawal that these kids have to withstand 
after being exposed to these medications. So there's lots of moving pieces and parts when you think about uh, sedation. Uh, there's been a total evolution of sedation practices in the adult world, uh, which is kind of uh, interesting. Um, there's been a series of papers published in the same issue of critical care medicine back in the late 1990s um, about titration of sedation, daily wake-up tests. There was a wonderful paper published by um, uh, Gerard in Lancet about linking sedation and ventilator protocols, all of which have moved the adult practice forward of more awake patients uh, with minimum adverse events. And They've been able to do this because most adults can talk to you and they can communicate with you and they can tell you whether or not they're in pain or they're, you know, anxious or, you know, uh, now the hot topic is delirium. So you can assess all those things in adults. In kids, it's quite different because people don't want to do any harm to these kids, obviously. If it took you five hours to get a central line in, you don't want it gone just like that. So there's lots of um, concern about whether or not you can move these nurse-implemented goal-directed uh, protocols forward, do these spontaneous awakening trials, and really linking ventilation and extubation readiness with sedation and have it move forward. So this is where we started uh, thinking about, well, what does this all mean uh, for pediatrics? So we started way back when trying to use the best of what they were doing in the adult world and putting on a pediatric spin to it and then make sure that everyone around the bedside was in agreement with what that patient's optimal level of sedation should be and move the patients there in a systematic way. So we developed and that was me without Gray a while back, um, along with John Arnold, who's a pediatric anesthesiologist up in Boston, uh, and Brenda Dotson, who's a PharmD. The three of us would round on these patients, you know, in the ICU, and we um, formed a pediatric version of a nurse-implemented directed sedation protocol. It took two years to develop. It took about 10 iterations to get the thing done. Every time we brought out a new iteration, people would say, what are you, crazy? We're not doing this, <laughs> you know? And we kept, you know, bringing it, getting feedback, bringing it back, rapid cycle changes until we wore everyone down or they finally said, okay, you know, it works. And so uh, we started uh, using that protocol uh, in Boston, you know, a decade ago. Um, and we also, at the same time, I was doing um, a clinical trial on prone positioning kids with acute respiratory failure. And the sedation protocol was one of the foundational um, uh, protocols for that uh, intervention. And after we finished that study, almost everyone who had been exposed to the protocol said, gee, you know, we don't want to prone 60 kilo kids anymore. That's fine. But can we keep the sedation protocol? We really like it. It gets everybody on the same page and can we continue to use it? And I was like, wow, you know, not too many people volunteer to use protocols. And I said, well, maybe this is something that we should continue uh, to study. So we went forward and we got our 21 funding from NICHD to do a pilot study of the intervention. And uh, I went to Polisi, which is this pediatric acute lung injury sepsis investigator network that we all kind of 
hang out at. And I asked for volunteers. A few people raised their hands. Uh, Children's Hospital Wisconsin, uh, Ryder Gadat, along with uh, Heidi Dalton from, at the time, D.C. Children's, said that they would participate. And so we had it pretty nailed in Boston, but we didn't know if we could roll it out uh, to novel sites. And so we did almost like a uh, mini version of a step wedge design pre-post evaluation of whether or not we could get it in, could teach it, and could learn from this and whether or not uh, people would do it. And so we learned enough to have a really good signal uh, that perhaps we could do this in pediatrics, but we needed to do a larger trial. We also needed to develop some instruments so that it could be goal-directed. And so we developed the State Behavioral Scale, which is modeled after the Richmond Agitation Scale in adults, but it's a bipolar, not personality, but it's a scale where if the more plus you become, the more agitated you are, and the more negative you become, the more sedated you are. It's pretty intuitive with zero being awake and you know, uh, interactive. We also rebuilt the uh, withdrawal assessment tool because we needed an outcome looking at uh, whether or not these kids had more or less um, withdrawal symptoms. So we built those two tools during the R21, and then we went forward to the Restore clinical trial um, on two tries uh, with NHLBI and NINR support. It was funded. Uh, so it was a phase three evaluation of the protocol uh, in the management of patients supported on um, mechanical ventilation for acute respiratory failure. So the restore intervention was uh, named over drinks at Polisi. Uh, there was a little contest on what we could do to get it named. Those of you who you always have to have like a clitchy, you know, a title that really wouldn't be too overambitious but a title that at least uh, you could quickly say rather than phase three evaluation, blah, 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 blah. So it ended up being uh, the Restore uh, Protocol. It was named by uh, Taylor Thompson from the General. So, uh, and he's a big pulmonary clinical trialist um, that taught us in, in Polisi a lot about how to run clinical trials. So the specific aims of this, we had three. Um, I'm... Uh, I'll talk today about whether uh, the first specific aim, which was to determine whether critically ill children managed with this protocol would experience fewer days of mechanical ventilation than patients receiving usual care. The other two uh, we are in the process of doing now. We just got the data set again out of the Christmas Center for the fourth time. Uh, going back and forth with cleaning. But we will be able to, using this data set, also talk about, um, in a big study, what these kids look like six months down the road from a quality of care perspective, and also put some uh, financial costs around the whole intervention. Uh, so the methods was, um, the NIH definitely wanted a randomized design. And we had gone in first with a pre-post-test design, uh, almost like a step wedge design, and they were like, no, no, no. We want, you know, randomization. Uh, and so when you randomize, you can randomize at a patient level, a team level, or a system level. And we randomized at a system level because really the intervention was something that you really couldn't turn on and off 
by team. So cluster randomized design, 31 PICUs across the United States. Um, the intervention required really a change in practice and how sedation was uh, administered, how teams of people worked together. Uh, the unit of randomization was the PICU, the unit of analysis was the patient, and we accounted uh, for site effects. Uh, we recruited uh, the sites out of the police network in order to do this you could not have a sedation protocol in place. Uh, you had to show evidence of nursing and physician leadership support. People will go to meetings and say, I'll do that, you know, I'll do that. And then they go home and it's like, what are you, crazy? Why did you get us involved with this? We, you know, we're never going to do this. Uh, so we asked everyone to volunteer and they had to discuss it within their physician and nursing leadership structure. And so the nursing leadership team and the physician leadership team had to sign off you know, non-binding, obviously. I, I guess I could sue if you didn't do it, but didn't do it. Um, non-binding, that they would honestly hold practices or agree to be randomized and to adopt the intervention to which they were randomized. Uh, so they had to agree to restore or continued uh, care. There was IRB approval from each clinical site and written informed consent from each uh, subject on both the control and the intervention arm. It was very interesting. This is the days prior to uh, reliance agreements and central IRBs. So really we have like 36 IRBs that we had to negotiate with uh, throughout the trial. Now I think NIH will be mandating central, uh, central IRBs uh, for these uh, multi-site trials. Uh, also, uh, uh, OHRP required that we get consent uh, from both the parents of the usual care arm and the intervention arm uh, because they wanted to make sure that parents were fully informed that they were in the middle of a trial. And a lot of that was post Peter Protovost quality improvement, you know, not getting consent. And so OHRP was very anxious about that, required that we did it. I think going forward, we might be able to get, if it's designed today, it might be um, a different story. Um, the uh, pre-randomization phase, uh, we did a lot of training, making sure that all the PQs implemented the same pain, sedation, and withdrawal assessments. They also had to do organizational assessments so that we could understand the units and how they were put together and how sedation was managed there. And then we collected some baseline data to see how many patients were actually there. And then we grouped sites for small, medium, and large enrolling sites, and then randomized uh, by size. So we ended up with 14 um, units in the treatment group and 17 in the treatment group, 14 in the control group. We over-enrolled because we thought the consent rates would be less parents consenting to usual care or to an intervention. Um, and then uh, we did um, acknowledge that the treatment group uh, was implemented, uh, the protocol as a research intervention in consented uh, patients. So we really had to monitor the extent to which there was bleed out to other patients um, and make sure that that did not occur. And then the control group continued uh, usual care practices, and we did audit for that as well. Uh, when we sent people in, we wanted to see if people were 
adopting elements of the protocol uh, inadvertently. We enrolled subjects uh, two weeks to 17, intubated and ventilated for acute airways or parenchymal disease. We excluded um, patients whose length of mechanical ventilation probably would not be uh, able to be modulated with sedation management. And for most of those patients were post-operative patients or patients, for example, after laryngotracheal reconstruction, where they had to be intubated for a certain amount of time. And we followed kids um, starting uh, within 24 hours of intubation to uh, at least 40, 72 hours after their opioids were discontinued, 28 days or hospital discharge. So Dean is well, well aware of this. Lots of data on patients from the time they started getting meds all the way to the very end. So. This database is huge because we know every single sedative uh, in any sedative-related agent that was administered uh, to these children. Our primary outcome variable was the duration of mechanical ventilation, and we had a host of secondaries. Remember, we were going into NHLBI. They were all about mechanical ventilation, and so the primary outcome variable was mechanical ventilation, but we wanted to know if sedation would affect the time of the acute phase of illness or the weaning phase. We wanted to know if kids would have less neurological testing if they were more awake. We wanted to see if we could impact lengths of stay in hospital mortality, obviously, any sedation-related adverse events. But we were very interested in looking at measures of wakefulness, pain, and agitation. So could we affect the sedation experience in and by itself um, and then also impact the occurrence of iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome. We powered out at 2448 intervention phase patients, 12, 24 in each group. Uh, that would give us 90% power to detect a 20% reduction in the duration of mechanical ventilation, controlling for uh, three peaks to the data um, and modest uh, within site correlations and moderate site-to-site -site variability in cluster sizes. Throughout the trial, we checked to make sure that our assumptions uh, were maintained, especially the inter-cluster uh, correlations, and they were. So we are very pleased about that. Uh, the protocol in itself, I'm gonna give you a little bit, uh, like a 90,000 foot, and then probe a little bit more into it, but the protocol itself required uh, interprofessional team training on how to do the protocol. Every day on rounds, there had to be discussion on where a patient was. What was their trajectory of illness? Were they in the acute phase? Were they in the titration phase or the weaning to extubation phase? And then the team, the interprofessional team, had to target levels of sedation for that patient for that day. And then the nurse could use the sedation protocol to manipulate the meds to get the patient to that targeted sedation. We embedded arousal assessments so that if the kids were too sedate at any point in time, they could become more awake. Uh, we embedded extubation readiness testing into that. Again, our primary outcome variable was the duration of mechanical ventilation. So we had to test to make sure that it wasn't randomly selected to extubate a, pa a patient on any given day. There were forced titrations in this, in this protocol. When the patients were no longer critically ill, every eight hours a move to sedation had to be made so that 
you just didn't coach the patient at an excessive level of sedation without trying to wean as quickly as you could. And then there was a sedation weaning plan on top of that. The assumptions were, were um, layering this protocol onto the assumption that you, the kids were on adequate ventilator settings and that comfort measures were also provided. So parents were there. The kids were comfortable. So what I'm talking about is later on top of what would be a standard of care. The primary agents that were used were morphine and midazolam. Fentanyl could be used for hypotension or reactive airways disease. Uh, we could use DEX or Profofol to facilitate extubation. Uh, clonidine, pentobarb, or ketamine if the patient was unresponsive to primary agents. And then for the management of iatrogenic withdrawal, clonidine was the primary agent followed by methadone only if the Watt scores were above uh, target. So the protocol had two pages. This is the startup page of the protocol. Uh, the first question gets asked, is this patient in pain? If the patient's in pain, then they're given morphine, morphine boluses. And if they're not in pain or they're agitated, then you can give uh, benzodiazepine uh, boluses. And so that's how it started up. But as soon as uh, you have the patient intubated and in control, then you determine how long the patient will be intubated. If it's less than two days, you stick with intermittent dosing. And if it's more than two days, then you go to continuous dosing. And that's so that you don't get yourself in a situation where the kids become over-sedated and you need to get them extubated quickly. Um, then you move on to page two of the protocol. It's color-coded, uh, and I'll pull it apart piece by piece here. But there's three phases, the acute titration and weaning phase. In the acute phase, the patient is critically unstable. You want to take sedation out of the picture. And so the goal here is to maintain the status quo, and you want the child sedated, negative one, negative two on the SBS score. So you put the patient in the acute phase, you probe that a negative one or two, the goal is to maintain stability, and if anything, you go up on your sedatives if the patient is requiring multiple uh, sedative boluses. So it's an escalation phase. And then you move on, hopefully, the patient moves on to the titration phase, where at this phase, they're pretty stable, they're tolerating the environment, and the goal is minimum but effective dosing, and the SBS goal is then targeted to be negative one or really have the patient be awake. Uh, at this point, you do do an extubation readiness test because you want the patient extubated if you can. And then if they're too sedated, you want the SBS uh, if they're a negative three, which is essentially unresponsive to everything, uh, including painful stimuli. You want that to be moved out, uh, moved to a lower state so you can do at that point an arousal assessment. But if they're just a little bit to sedate, but not really over sedate, you want to coast them up slowly. So we modified uh, coordinating with the extubation readiness tests, a full or modified assessment where you turn off all the meds and you wait for them to get to like a negative two, or if they're a negative two, you just reduce by 50% and then allow them to coast up. So that was embedded there, along with the extubation readiness test, which has been previously published 
uh, and we use in the prone trial. Uh, but every day it tests the patient's readiness to be extubated. You move them to the, uh, their, the test and then uh, tee them up for extubation. But here in the titration phase, there's forced titration. Every eight hours, you go up if the patient required numerous sedation boluses, or you go down. Uh, so this was the hardest part, because nurses like to coast the patient and keep a perfectly sedated patient there. The patient's getting better, but they're getting the same amount of sedation. And so you have to put that back into sequence. Patients getting better, less sedation. So you have to start titrating. Um, and so I was called a lot of things during this department. Inhumane, what am I crazy? But um, what happens here is that if you really push this phase on somebody who's recovering, you end up on very low amounts of sedatives and you decrease even the patient's capacity uh, or um, their experience uh, gets driven down constantly. So they end up on weaning on very low doses of meds. And I knew during the trial we were making progress here because instead of how to triple concentrate drugs to get them into the patient, it was like, we can't run these drips so slow anymore. You know, can we go back to intermittent dosing because we can't run the drips. So I was like, wow, this is like a complete difference to what we had started. Uh, the last piece of this is the weaning to extubation phase. And this is when a patient passes their extubation readiness test. You want them awake and you want them off of the, uh, the sedatives. So the goal is to discontinue sedation. And so we wean morphine first and then the benzodiazepines. And then we have um, some starts and stops depending upon patient tolerance. Uh, but definitely one agent than another. Morphine first because most floors won't take kids on morphine drips, opioid drips. Uh, and then kids can go home on benzos better so than they can go home on opioids. Um, but it's all um, built around the WAT1, so you target a WAT1. Kids will have withdrawal symptoms regardless of whether or not, you know, you plan for them. So if they've been on highly exposed to, to opioids and benzos, they will withdraw. And so you have to target so that there's some symptoms, but symptoms that they are able uh, to tolerate. And then put this in some type of a process so that it happens automatically rather than writing every single decrease in drip. So, you know, you start the process, you fill out either the paper or the Excel-based form, and the, it happens so that things keep moving so that the patient doesn't have to wait to somebody remembers how to write the order or to move the patient uh, forward. So uh, we finished up the trial and we got published. And so let me move on to what we found. So what we did was we randomized our 31 sites. As we expected, our consent rates were a little bit lower in the intervention arm than the control arm. So it was a good thing that we loaded up that way. Uh, but we did have um, a lot of patients screened, and we only had a few patients that were not did not complete uh, the trial. But in all, we had 12:25 in the intervention group and 12:24 uh, in the control group. Um, there were eligible but not enrolled patients. This is a rundown of patients who were eligible, but we weren't able to get them studied. Uh, parent refusal, um, 
you know, we had um, 55% of those who said no were refusals, but some people just really weren't around within the window, which was kind of interesting. We didn't think in an ICU trial that we would see that, or just who has guardianship issues of these kids who really can sign, uh, language barriers, system issues. Uh, and we were also at one point um, fighting with other clinical trialists for patients. Uh, the Lucinactin trial, the Thapka trial, um, half pint wasn't so bad and then a lot of other random trials. So as a clinical trialist, you think you might have the patients, but then every single patient is so important because the number one reason why uh, trials close is lack of enrollment. And so you're always looking for your next patient. Uh, baseline characteristics, because it was site-level randomization, there were some baseline differences. Uh, we had younger kids in the intervention arm um, <laughs> They weren't as sick, but definitely within that two-week to two-year-old uh, um, population, they, they were not as sick because there were more bronchiolytics, you know, in the uh, intervention group. Uh, how many of you practice every day PICU care? I mean, the bronchiolytics are probably the worst patient population to try to keep intubated and calm and ventilated. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. It didn't play out that their PRISM scores were worse, but they are definitely, you know, a worse population to try to keep comfortable. Um, as far as protocol uh, fidelity, we had really good uh, protocol fidelity. 85% um, versus 69% of the patients getting their baseline assessments uh, compliance was over 70% on every single eligible day, uh, and really complete compliance was, was quite high. 98% of the kids in the intervention group had targeted uh, sedation, and those scores, that those targets were achieved 95% of the time. So once you embedded in the protocol, once people got familiar with it, it was an easy protocol uh, to maintain. That said, we saw no difference in our primary outcome variable. So you don't need binoculars to see that these lines overlap in both the treatment and the intervention group. So we saw no difference at all in the duration of mechanical ventilation. It was about six and a half days in both arms. So you always know when you go into a DSMB meeting when the stuff's on the, you know, over, you know, rather than always being hidden. Uh, but um, it was very disappointing from this perspective. But as you'll see, we were very excited about all the other things. We saw that the kids in the intervention arm had less neurological testing, again, because they didn't need to be taken off unit to be tested because they were more awake from a neurological uh, perspective. We had a difference in what were the major cocktails that were used, uh, morphine in the treatment group, and fentanyl in the usual care arm, and a little bit more midazolam used in the uh, intervention arm, which is just reflective uh, of the protocol. Uh, but we were seeing less opioid exposure, which every single day that you can carve off any med from a patient with a developing brain has got to be a good thing. Uh, we saw more DEX use over time, and we're getting ready to publish our experience with DEX, but definitely in the control group, 
there was a much different use of that med over time. Uh, and we also saw that in the intervention arm, there were less polypharmacy, less different things being used uh, in the intervention arm. But the kids were more awake uh, in the intervention arm, which was a good thing. Um, 86 uh, uh, percent of their days, they were awake and calm. Uh, again, they had to have a SPS of zero and they had to be calm. So they had more days of that. But because they were more awake and calm, they had more breakthrough reported episodes of pain and agitation, which makes sense because if you're riding them higher, you're going to be able to quickly assess them. So they were assessed to be in pain and agitated, but they were able to be managed because we didn't see an increase in inadequate pain and sedation management or clinically significant iatrogenic uh, withdrawal syndrome. Uh, we saw a little bit more post-exhibition strider, but that makes sense in that more popu patient population that we had. Uh, and we saw significantly less immobility-related pressure ulcers because these kids were able to move around when they needed to be moved around. So in summary, our protocol did not reduce the duration of mechanical ventilation, but definitely changed the sedation experience. Uh, patients on the protocol were able to be safely managed in a more awake state, which in pediatrics was an important question uh, to be answered. They, re they received fewer days of opioid exposure, and they didn't have an increase in inadequate pain or agitation. So they were more awake more participatory, and they weren't in pain uh, or agitated. Uh, they were more awake and calm, better able to communicate their pain. So yes, had more breakthrough um, uh, uh, pain and agitation, but in the context of poly, decrease in polypharmacy. So they didn't have all these multiple agents of different things being, moved, uh, being administered. And they were able to move. They had a little bit more post-exhibition strider that did not result in reintubation, and they were able to interact meaningfully with their team, so they were having less neurological testing. Um, in, in summary, again, prescribing a more awake state during the titration phase drove down the sedative exposure, uh, accelerated weaning uh, in off the primary agent, uh, and also, we decreased the need for methadone. We significantly decreased the use of methadone, so you didn't then have to titrate the patient off methadone. Uh, so mostly they were used on clonidine, but again, the kids weren't withdrawing as much as what we had anticipated. Uh, the limitations of the study had to do with the cluster randomized design, uh, enrolling more kids under two with bronchiolitis, uh, it was an unblinded uh, study, so it's always subject to selection bias. Um, we didn't look at delirium because when we started the trial, delirium tools were just totally not available in this population. Uh, so uh, going forward, uh, delirium tools will, I think, become part of the landscape, but hopefully if we control kids in a different way, they may not end up with delirium uh, in the first place. Uh, the generalizability of this intervention to other critically ill patients is a question. Uh, we did uh, redesign the protocol uh, to what we call restore cardiac 
So the first page of the protocol is a fast track protocol and the second page is exactly the same. We just tested it in children's uh, cardiac intensive care unit. And those of you who know Jim Locke wrote an email out to the staff saying that when he heard the report of the uh, preliminary data saying, the only thing wrong with this protocol is that I didn't think about it. <laughs> so, you know, to me, I was ready to go home for the rest of my life after that compliment. Uh, but anyway, so it's working really well in that population. So we're teeing up, uh, hopefully, to retest this in the cardiac population. Uh, and then, obviously, we had many secondary outcomes and no statistical adjustments were made for multiple uh, comparisons. So what we learned is that you could reduce variation in sedation management and you could uh, do this and produce a different sedation experience uh, for kids and you could keep them self, uh, safe and ventilated, which is not an oxymoron. Uh, and then nurses uh, working within the t uh, interprofessional team could manage this safely without iatrogenic um, events. So our goal here was to get to this awake yet comfortable patients with minimum side effects and I think we were, were able uh, to do that. Uh, things on the horizon, um, the Restore Protocol also had a number of ancillary trials specifically looking at biomarkers of acute lung injury and Athena Zupa's work on looking at the pharmacogenetics uh, on our different agents and so these uh, sets of investigators are crunching their numbers now and papers will be coming out uh, within the next year on both of these uh, issues. Uh, Scott Watson and I continue to uh, be funded to look at the long-term impact uh, of kids who have been critically ill and exposed to all these sedative agents. Lots of worries about uh, what happens in the operating room from an anesthesia perspective yet little is known about all the sedative agents out inside the intensive care unit. So we've been funded to bring back 500 kids, uh, risk adjusting them obviously for their criticality of their illness, looking for that best neural sparing sedative that can be used in the intensive care unit. And what's really interesting about this study is that if we're able to contact the parents, we have like over 95% consent rate because families are concerned about the long-term impact um, on their, of critical illness on their kids. So they are bringing uh, their kids back. And so hopefully we're about halfway through this funding cycle. Hopefully in two and a half years, we'll have data to be able to answer uh, that question. And so what's next after this? It's really, now that we know we can keep kids more awake in the intensive care unit, it's about changing the ICU experience in and by itself. Um, if you think about the intensive care unit, it's really not a healing environment. You know, as soon as kids come in, we strip them all of their circadian rhythms and their sleep pattern. We put them in this very no noisy, loud, you know, lack of day-night variation environment and we expect them to heal. And there's just no way that we should be doing this, you know. A long time ago, Florence Nightingale said, hospitals in the very least should do no harm. And I think PICU care in this day and age produces harm and we need to think differently about that. Um, so hopefully Dan, 
thinking back of the early days of critical care and the future days of critical care, maybe there'll be a whole different milieus uh, and a little bit more synced into the needs of the patient and the family. Uh, we now know through Restore we can wake them up and they don't have to be comatose, but there's much more work to be done. So with that, I'll stop and take any questions that anybody might have. Thank you. so much for this uh, talk. It's really great work. So I'm uh, a NICU fellow, so I'm coming from the NICU perspective. And I'm just wondering, I have two questions. Um, one, if you have any thoughts on the NICU, especially given the, the um, previous sort of thought in the NICU is that babies didn't really feel pain and there's mm -hmm. a wide variety in what uh, NICUs practice right now in sedation. So if you have any thoughts on uh, NICU care, and then number two, the other questions were more on the quality improvement, because the study, um, although it was a randomized control trial, it was sort of on the quality improvement um, aspect. And if you saw any uh, centers that did better than other centers, and if so, did you sort of investigate what they were doing differently or what we could learn from them? So uh, the first question about the NICU. So Michelle uh, Lebrecht is a clinical nurse specialist in the NICU in Boston. The NICU in Boston is a little bit different because it's a lot of surgical babies and a lot of older kids, uh, but she is trying to work through a similar protocol in that uh, environment. So I think conceptually, if you look again, at, instead of just saying, we set, sedate all our neonates this way, and this is what we do, really just look at the individual um, you know, patient, you know, how old they are, what's their response, uh, what's happening with them and how interactive are they not? What's their, you know, gestational age? How how can they react? And then if you use the basic principles, acute titration weaning, and then target sedation, uh, it makes sense uh, that it can be done in that way. But again, uh, yeah, I grew up in a place where, um, you know, it was believed that morphine was a horrible drug and you ought not to give it to kids. Uh, it's kind of scary now with developing brains and what's happening. Uh, so I don't think we need, you know, we just don't have enough information about that as yet. Thus, the restored cognition, I think, will help a little bit. But um, again, to move towards a developmental um, individualized assessment, I think, would be a good strategy there. Uh, and as far as the second question, absolutely. Uh, we did do the organizational assessments, and I did visit every single one of these intervention ICUs. And the chaos factor was very different in each of these intensive care units. And how people used the protocol would be very different, and how on board they were, and whether or not they used the language in rounds. Because really, the language of rounds is, you know, interprofessional, what's going on, everyone contributing information rather than sedation, yes. <laughs> it really is. The kid's getting better, worse, or what's happening with the patient, and then targeting, and then everybody agreeing, and then putting in the templated orders. Um, and in, when we did the R21, it was more profound. One unit was uh, less chaotic than the other, uh, but the chaotic unit saw more payload because I think there was more chaos. And if you threw anything into chaos, it would decrease chaos and you would have better 
you know, care. Um, so that said, um, you know, I wish I had the brain width to figure it all out. Like, you know, if we could align the, the FTEs of physicians, nurses, how many people turn over, you know, try to get a sense of chaos. And then we can do, you know, unit specific analyses. Uh, I think that would be really cool. So maybe some type of a cluster analysis uh, would be interesting to do. But yeah, I definitely saw differences. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that uh, I think was on the chart you didn't mention was there was no difference in um, accidental extubation or right. inadvertent extubation, which is something we all worry about with understated kids. So I was really pleased to see that that was not an issue. Um, I'm wondering about now uh, post-study, because anecdotally, everybody, everybody who was in the intervention arm said this has revolutionized how they do things. Everyone loves it. So in now moving forward for the control sites who might want to begin this, because there's an enormous amount of evidence that uh, doing things the same, mm -hmm. whether there's any estimation of right or wrong, whether it's the right way or wrong way, doing things the same improves outcomes. There's an enormous amount of evidence mm -hmm. in adult critical care, in adult medicine, in pediatric medicine. So I think that that you know, is, a, is a, an accepted um, uh, theory. So if we want to roll this out, how, um, how specific to the actual protocol, or is, can that protocol be modified? Do we need to be trained to do that? Can we just take the sheets and do it? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so we did debrief all the intervention sites and asked them to the extent to which they were going to maintain and roll it out to everybody else. Almost everybody said we're going to roll it out to everybody else. Uh, some people have different beliefs about different cocktails. And so my recommendation is just move the protocol in as designed. And then once it's in and you're using it as designed on the principles of, you know, trajectory, targets, you know, nurse implemented, that at least start there. And then if you don't like to use morphine, you want to use fentanyl, or you want to use dex more in the acute phase or something, that makes sense. So what we're doing with all the control sites and what one of our agreement was, was that we would give you everything that you needed to implement the protocol. So the website now that drives this is completely open. All the training materials are there. And if you need any help with implementing, I have an obligation to help you do that. So that was part of the deal. Good, I got you on. <laughs> it's all part of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, hi. Um, one question I have is with more patients that are awake, um, maybe during the titration or maintenance phase during rounds, is there a move um, to consider what they might be hearing during rounds at the bedside? So using less scary words for the older kiddos like liver failure, kidney failure, heart failure? Well, everybody dances around the best space whether or not the patient is cognitively aware or not. You know, and I mean, the conversations are a little bit different, but. Um, I would assume so. I would assume so. Most of uh, the units that I visited rounded outside the bedside uh, because the kids are so fragile in and by themselves. And it's also very interesting to note that some parents are not participating on rounds. Some people sit, stand out there for like 15 minutes waiting for the parents to come out to continue with rounds, which I was like, wow, that would never happen where I work. You know, people just keep moving. If you're there, you're there. And if you're not, you're not. But uh, yeah, I think people are always very cautious about, you know, what they're saying over a bedside, even when it's a baby. I mean, they just don't really talk like that at a bedside. But that would be an interesting study, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
thank you for that tremendous work. I have a couple of questions for you. First, the, to what is your interpretation of the negative primary outcome? Because there are multiple possibilities there. And second, how much do you think there was a Hawthorne effect with the intervention sites, the nurses, number of nurses assigned to a patient, the amount of attention paid to the stability of the endotracheal tube, uh, things like that. And if there is a Hawthorne effect, can that then be generalized to other units <coughs> where they may not be as focused and paying as much attention so when they have more awake patients, the safety factor becomes an issue. Yeah, so nurse uh, patient ratios are kind of uh, all over the map right now. I mean, the only way you can get one nurse to one patient in the ICU is if you work in Europe uh, because it's mandated uh, in Europe. And some, uh, most people, it's always, uh, you know, one nurse to two patients, intubated or not different sides of the ward or not. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, Martha, if we have more awake patients, we're going to have to really be hypervigilant that the nurses will do this. Um, and so I'm like, yeah, so what's wrong with that? You know, if we need more nurses in the intensive care unit, uh, so let's do that. But I also think, you know, there are also parents in the intensive care unit. And typically parents really don't participate too much in the physical uh, physical care, yes, over time. But I think we could use parents in different ways. Uh, to be a parent of a critically ill child is something that parents transition into. And I think we can partner with them in a little bit different. So it doesn't automatically translate to we need more nurses because we have more awake patients. Um, also, I think if kids are able to tolerate, there's a building of non-invasive ventilation. So the endotracheal tubes in and by themselves uh, we did not see, Shalene, at all, any increase in adverse events, and that was one of our biggest fears. We didn't see anything. Um, you know, to Dan's point, we did see an overreporting of everything on the intervention arm, you know, because people were more cognizant that the patient was on a protocol because we were managing that way, where we saw totally underreporting of things in the uh, control group, but we did a level of, of auditing in this trial that typically doesn't happen in our field. And so we had people trained, you know, PICU nurses, some something like, you know, Dean to go into the units and embed, and we did a 100% audit uh, for all adverse events. And so people went through all the adverse events looking for things in the control side because we knew we had an underreporting there. Um, but, you know, that said, I think, you know, we're challenged with this new time, but if it's good for patients, we can, we're gonna have to figure out how to, how to make that happen. So, and then why the, why was it, oh, well, that line overlap on that Kaplan-Meier? Well, I wish I knew, you know, but, I'm thinking that there wasn't either, there was a drifting in the control group, you know, which, although we audited, you know, were there more things going on in that uh, control group? What was the impact of DECs? I don't know. Uh, so there were some differences between these groups. Uh, but um, 
if I was to say one thing, maybe there was some bleed into having kids be more awake, but we did a better job of it in the intervention group, and it didn't pay off in the length of mechanical ventilation. So. Good. I think that's a good note to end on. I feel like I'm asking the question. So, again, thanks for, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.